my memory of her was I couldn't see her from the first part of the stoop but it looked like she was stooping almost at something else she was coming down vertically at a distance and then she bottomed out the stoop and shot past me over my left shoulder at god knows what speed and just connected to the rooster before he hit the reeds by the edge of this root this reservoir and it was just that was the flight of her career for me hey how's it going everyone welcome back for another episode of the falconry toll podcast and what is now the 13th episode in our series featuring falconers from the uk and as usual i have to start off by giving a quick shout out to the two falconers from the uk that made this series possible being neil davies and simon tires and of course neil is the editor for pursuit falconry and conservation magazine as you've heard me promote this magazine before i highly recommend that you get a subscription there's always lots of great new falconry content in each new issue if you want to check it out and don't know anything about it yet and want to subscribe head to pursuitfalconry.co.uk it's well worth the expense and i'm sure you'll enjoy each and every new issue that comes out and of course i also have to mention simon tires who is also the author of the specialist falcon if you haven't added this book to your falconry library yet i highly recommend you do so there's a lot of great information about flying long wings in this book and there's also a lot of information as far as droning and some of the other newer technologies in falconry that are used in more modern day applications so if you haven't picked up your copy yet definitely head to the specialistfalcon.com and do so you can also get signed copies from simon as well on that website and like i said it's a must-have definitely add it to your bookshelf all right and for those of you who are art collectors particularly wildlife and falconry art collectors i'm sure you're already very familiar with the name andrew ellis andy is not only an accomplished falconer but in my humble opinion is one of the best wildlife artists in the world i may just be biased now because i've actually gotten a chance to sit down and talk to him and get to know him a little bit but i've been a big fan of his work for a long time now and it's a personal goal of mine to own a painting of his eventually i really hope i can make that happen sometime down the road but we'll just have to see but either way there was a lot of things that we covered in this conversation that i'm very happy with i got a chance to talk to him about his evolution as an artist and some of his personal falconry and and hopefully we get to do a a part two down the road and and cover a lot of the things that we wish we would have gotten a chance to discuss but just didn't have the time for so all that being said i'm sure you're going to really enjoy this conversation that i had with andrew ellis so have fun enjoy and here we go Mr. Ellis, so how are you, man? I'm good. Good? good happy good. to be here. No, well, I'm happy for you to be here. <laughs> I've seen a lot of your art. We were just talking about that. And, um, yes. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan. Thank you. Don't have any originals yet. I hope to remedy like that at yet. some point. Yeah, yeah. I like the yet. <laughs> <laughs> you, if, if you wait me out long enough, it'll happen. Um, that's good to know we we got we've got to figure out how to make it happen we'll talk more about that after after this is always but cheers man cheers this is no no no, i'm I'm grateful to be here and uh i've enjoyed listening to some of the podcasts anyway nice Uh, i've caught up with most of them but uh i've still got some to listen to so nice it's great what you're doing really i really think it's a good thing awesome well thanks for the support you know i've i've um i guess i mean it's still I, I can't speak for Israel, but I'm pretty sure that, that he feels the same way. It's still kind of humbling and somewhat, I guess, strange to yeah. us in a way to have people, you know, come up to us and, and tell us they enjoy it and stuff. We yeah. just, we put the stuff out there because we enjoy doing it and hope people like it, get something out of it. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm sure, I don't, do you ever feel that kind of way whenever people give you compliments on your art and stuff do you do you find it hard or weird sometimes to accept like compliments or i think i mean i've been doing the art side of things for so long you do you do get used to it um but it's always nice of course it's nice because you you 
you're putting your creative side out there, which let's face it, uh, you know, that's part of you, big part of you. And, uh, some people feel very vulnerable with that. Mm -hmm. Um, and to get nice feedback is always, always welcome. You know, it means that you're doing something that is worthwhile and brings pleasure to, you know, to people's lives. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I, I just, it's amazing how falconers in general, I think mm-hmm. because falconry is, is partially, you know, an art or there's yeah. a big aspect of it that, that is an art. Well, I think it, it is an art form. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's developed as an art form. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for for sure. And I, I think that we as falconers in general uh, can be a sensitive bunch at times anyway. <laughs> on a, on I'd a, say. On a good day. <laughs> on a good day. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. Ego gets involved there, I'm afraid, <laughs> sometimes. And I've seen the worst and the best of it, for sure. But um, no, because we put so much into it. Mm-hmm. You know, just like the art. I mean, uh, you're immersed, you know, in the process. Um, And that immersion uh, is all the way along the line. You can have a hawk that's 10 years old, um, but it's developing all that time. Even though it's an old timer, it knows the ropes, it knows. You're still developing that bird. Um. You know, there's always something new every year that you see, uh, especially, I mean, in my experience anyway, you say, ah, this is different. Not done this before. Or, you know, um, and with uh, the painting, it's the same. It never stops. You know, you're always learning, always developing. Um, And that uh, is such a valuable thing. You know, it really, really is, you know, to even to pass on to other people, to show other people. Um, And they see it, too. I mean, people, you know, comment on it, on the artwork. You know, they say, God, this is even better. Or, you know, you're doing this slightly differently. I love the way that you're, you know, you're becoming more loose in this area or, you know. Sure. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, getting feedback. It's a nice thing. It is a nice thing. Especially from people that you respect and know their subject. I mean, that's going back to the beginning of things. Um, When I uh, was uh, learning with my art and thinking that it might be even a possibility to make this a living, uh, I was painting birds almost exclusively and and falcons in particular, birds of prey. And uh, my biggest critic and the best critic were the falconers and one falconer in between in particular that was teaching me you know his opinion was everything and so to get that feedback to say yeah you nailed that is brilliant you know it sure. really is yeah, yeah so with the podcast and what we do um it's vital yeah, yeah. no i i agree and and it's it's the um it's it kind of I'm sure goes along to some degree with like that positive reinforcement that you get whenever you're learning from your mentor yeah. and uh, learning how to train a bird in the beginning and and um, you know I mean as a musician too I can you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I I I totally understand yeah, yeah it's it always feels let's just say it always feels so much better to be told that you made someone feel good by what you're doing mm-hmm. as opposed to the opposite end of the spectrum in which, you know, it's, uh, it can get kind of brutal sometimes, but, of course. but, you know, you, you, you learn just like in falconry too, though, you learn whenever you're, you know, initially starting off to, to, to get some thick skin. I mean, it takes, it takes a certain degree of thick skin and. Well, yeah, I think that's really important. And that's one thing. Um, when, when, this particular gentleman that I've got in my mind started critiquing my work. Um, he didn't pull his punches sometimes. You know, he said, that you could do better than that. That's, that's shite, you know, just, you know, you know better. <laughs> yeah. And But um, it helped me develop that thick skin to think, no, this is all positive. You know, a lot of people would curl up in a corner and think, oh, my God, you've been awful to me, you mm-hmm. know? Right. I don't want to do this anymore. But 
uh, I'm glad I had that because um, it also helps you self-critique harder, you know, push yourself harder. Um, so when I was developing, um, it was essential to get that. And I actually took that to college when I was at college. Um, you know, tutors would, we'd have these critiques in front of the class and that can be quite brutal, but you know, it helped, it helped me, you know, you got to see through all the, you, you don't see it as personal. Don't take it personally to the, you know, they're trying to produce the best from you and, uh, that can only be a good thing. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. It's, uh, it, you, if you don't learn how to take the criticism and the, whether it be constructive or mm. otherwise the right way from the get go, then yeah, you're going to have a, a, a very hard time yes. in any kind of art type world, yeah, in any yeah. kind of creative world. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's just something that comes with it. That said, giving out advice and criticism, mm -hmm. I do sometimes find hard because, uh, I know how, you know, I've had other artists say, you know, what do you think of this? And, and it is hard sometimes to be brutally honest, mm. you know, because you don't know how they're going to take it. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's just another facet of it. But, you know, if you're working on your own personal development, then, yeah, you've got to develop that thick skin. Yeah. You've got to take the criticism, analyze it, you know, don't take it all you know, at face value, but uh, really look into what they're saying, take it on board and uh, learn from it. Yeah. Yeah. And then we never, never stop learning in any creative facet, whether it be no. falconry or, or art or, yeah. or any other there's, form there's of art. There's some yeah. really good parallels with doing the painting side of things and developing, say, a falcon. Mm -hmm. You know, I see that from the very beginning you know, you've got a black ca blank canvas that's the yeah obvious one you know mm -hmm. and you're thinking well how am i going to mold this falcon how do i want it to turn out what is what are my objectives if those objectives don't quite pan out what am i going to do you know all these things uh, and that comes with the art too i've got this idea and i've got to put the foundation work in to make this a masterpiece yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's a lovely process <laughs> Well, in how, both, in both regards. No, I, yeah, I, I totally, I can totally see that. And I mean, how long now have you been doing both? It's a very good question because quite honestly, since I can remember, uh, and I don't say that lightly, it's, it's, especially with the art. So my mother, um, has told me that she remembers me at say five drawing very basic shapes of basically hooks with eyes, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, which clearly I remember, I remember I had this very basic stylized zoo book with animals in it that she was in, you know, amongst the toys and stuff like that. And, the, you know, the children's books that you get. And I remember her telling me that I copied a lot from that. And then I would get her to copy. I'd, Can you draw this, mum? Can you draw that, mum? You know, and then that developed to me just drawing. But um, really noticeable as a, as a child, I was obsessed with birds. Just looking out the window, watching the bird feeders. Coincidentally, my father raced pigeons. He was into racing pigeons. A lot of money can be in that. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. And a lot of his friends were also, you know, big into it. You know, it was a little group of them locally that, that uh, did a lot with the birds. And obviously, as a small boy, I would be taken along to the club meetings and stuff like this. Um. So birds were around me a lot, uh, and I used to like drawing as much as possible. I remember sitting at my my parents' uh, house window, the back window, looked out into the garden, and there was always a feeder there. And I remember trying to draw um, 
small birds coming to it, house sparrows, blue tits, uh, green finches, all these. And even early on, you know, I'm talking sort of at primary school level. Um, <laughs> my parents told me about this time. My dad came and my mum came to what is like a parent's evening, you know, where they all come and, you know, they look at the kids' work and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Yeah. And then we'd been drawing animals, drawing stuff. And dad remarked to my mum after that um, he came away from there and there was all these abstract, <laughs> <laughs> you know, daubings, messy paintings with thick brushes. But he said... What really stood out is that among them was a budgerigar, you know, and you could tell it was a budgerigar and it was mine, <laughs> you know. So even as a small infant, you know, uh, primary level, I was already honing. Yeah, I've got to get this right. You know, I was really looking and really, really studying. So it started from very, very early. Um, and then... Uh, coincidentally, because my dad had all these pigeon uh, books and stuff like that, I remember leafing through one and I came across this image of a peregrine. And I remember asking, I said, what's that, dad? What is this bird? <laughs> oh, yeah, those things. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I was obsessed from that point. I was just looking at this, and it was a it was a black and white engraving type picture of a of a peregrine. Gotcha. And then when he told me, "Oh, these things are super fast. You know, they're faster. They catch pigeons." Because I already knew how fast pigeons were. Um, I said, "Wow, these things ca catch pigeons," and I was hooked. You know, and I had to find out everything I could about peregrines and birds of prey in general. And that started a whole, whole chapter of, you know, obsession about birds of prey. I'd bug them about, you know, we go on motorway journeys down to my uh, grandparents who lived in Cornwall and all the way down on the motorway. I'm looking out the window, looking for kestrels hovering on the side of the road, you know, completely obsessed yeah, that's great. No, I, I had, so about what age do you think that you that you can remember that was that you kind of had your first actual falconry experience, whether that be going to a meet or actually seeing a hunt or? Well, I I kind of consider that quite late for me. Um, I'd been obsessed with birds of prey, and I used to buy books, you know, with and I used to look at the plates. And what and marvel at the artwork that these artists were doing on birds of prey, and I, you know, quite quite obsessively. In the fact, I would rate a guidebook on its plates of birds of prey, whether the guy was good or not. You know, even at a young age, and I would flick through the the, the book very quickly to the raptors section. That's how obsessed I was with it. So anything on TV or the books, stuff like that. My first falconry experience wasn't until I was probably about 15, 16. Um, and I remember going to what we com commonly know now as country fairs, you know, game fairs. And there was one locally that turned up, first one in a long time. I'd never come across it. Um, I lived, I used to live down the road from a race course and it was on, on at the race course. And there was a falconer there. And I remember just hanging around for ages, just staring at the birds. Couldn't bring up the courage to go and talk to the guys. <laughs> um, and that was the Welsh Hawking Club. I didn't realize at the time, but they had a big static. They didn't do any flying displays there, but they had a static display. There was Golden Eagle there. There was Peregrines. And I was obsessed with I got my dad's camera from home and I raced back to the show and was taking these black and white photos of the Peregrine almost exclusively. Um, and uh, But the year after, the show was on, on again. And this time they'd got a falconer there that was going to do a flying display. And that guy was called Jeff Pearson. Um, and uh, dad came along with me and he said, uh, and we took some of my early paintings. And 
uh, I was too shy. I was too shy to talk to the guy. So dad went, came with me and he said, look, I'll get his attention. You just start talking to him. So he, he got Jeff to come over and he said, look, we'd like you to have a look at this work, see what you think of it. And uh, he was very gracious and and could see, obviously, that there was something in these drawings, paintings. And it, from that point, he said, no, come around, come around. And I saw he invited me around to where, you know, inside the display area and I got talking to him and his wife and we arranged then for me to go down to his place and you know they they ran courses so it wasn't very long before I was on course and you know actually you know living with the idea that I could do this I could actually become a falconer yeah you know yeah, so it wasn't that long then after that that you actually got to see birds actually really hunting in, in action. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Jeff primarily was what you would term as a display falconer, although, although he did hunt, um, but that was his living, was doing the display work. Um, they had a center which they uh, designed and built at one of the local attractions, and, you know, I, I went there, but I went out hunting with him, uh, with Harris hawks and rabbits on rabbits. Um, so I saw all that, got to handle the birds primarily, but I was also not really with, cause of school and stuff like that. I wasn't in a position to really go out and get a bird. So any opportunity I had, I would go and visit them and talk to them, show them the artwork. And he was great because he critiqued it. He, he, he um, guided me uh, where I was going wrong, but, he, you know, slowly they were getting better and better and better. And I remember what, at some point, I think it was, I think I was around about sort of nineteen twenty, And I remember going with him with going to see him with a load of work. And he said, I can't fault them. <laughs> and then I knew, you know, and he said, you need to get to other falconers now. And show this because he says that you can you can sell these these are these are good yeah so did so, you did you start then getting any commissions shortly after that on, on well based on i mean they obviously or? i mean the first commissions were um ironically that they, they weren't the first commissions i remember uh, my grandparents lived in Newlyn, which is a very small fishing village down in cornwall right near down the end near towards land's end and uh, we used to go down there for summers and uh, spend my summers there. And I remember a guy, and I would come down and show my grandparents what I've been up to, you know, drawing and painting. And I remember I did this prairie falcon painting, very early stuff of mine with pen and ink and paint because um, I was still experimenting. But he saw it from behind the bar. He was on the other side of the bar. And he said, do you want to sell that? And at that point, I'd not really sold anything. <laughs> and I think it sold for something like... $10. <laughs> yeah, it was like 10, 10 pounds, something like that. But yeah. for me at the time, and I was only a young kid, I thought, wow, this is great. You know, I didn't really want to sell it, if I'm honest. There's a stage with any art... I think any artists where you're producing this work, you're putting a lot into it. Letting go of them is a new thing, you know? And, uh, I sold a few like that and he commissioned me. He said, when you come down here next year, can you do, I can't even remember what it was. I like, I think he asked for a Kingfisher or something like that. Cause he wasn't into birds of prey, but you know, and that was like the first, very first commission. Then Jeff and Glow, his partner, commissioned me to do a few paintings of their birds. But Jeff tipped me the wink about the Falconers Fair, the very first Falconers Fair that was in the UK. And that was 1991. Yeah, 1991. And he said, you've got to get to this place. You've got to get to this show and you've got to show your your artwork. And I remember my parents and me driving. I remember talking to the organizers at first and I got onto the phone with one of the guys. Um, 
I'm trying to remember his name. Very old gentleman who was one of the organizers. And I got talking to him about what I did, you know, and what I was trying to do. I told him my age. And he said, tell you what, I'll give you the pitch for free. If you come with your artwork, I'll give you a small pitch, which you can put your tent up on and sell your artwork. Um, he said, but I'll come along and have a look and maybe I'll buy one of your pieces too. And he ended up commissioning me in the end. But um, <laughs> yeah, that first fair, I got to the pitch for free and I turned up there in this orange with an orange tent that was probably 20 foot at the most. And we slept in it at night <laughs> and put the artwork up during the day. And I had the artwork all hung on bamboo canes. It was really rustic and basic. Uh, my dad did some of the framing for me, you know, um, but I sold everything the first year. I sold everything I had. And okay, I wasn't charging a lot, maybe 50 quid to a hundred, hundred, 400 pounds, I think was the most expensive piece I had there. Yeah, they they people were coming by and and it was like this is this stuff is a is a bargain. This is <laughs> I think I yeah, I was told after the event that people were saying, "Have you seen that kid's stuff down on the end there? You want to go <laughs> and have a look at it?" Which was really nice to hear. You know, it was a real sort god, these are the guys that I really want to impress because they are they know their stuff. You know, and if they think it's good, then I'm getting somewhere. I'm doing it right. Well, and I'm sure that you probably... Were there any other artists there at the time too? Well, again, that leads on to the next stage for me because yeah. there were a number of other artists there, including one called Alan Hunt, who was a pretty big deal actually mm. on the wildlife art scene. Uh, he was uh, at the time exhibiting a lot in the States uh, he'd been picked up by one of the big publishers in the States too. He was doing touring around America and exhibiting over here. He came into the tent and uh, I struck up a con. He thought my father was painting them. <laughs> so he turned to my father and said, did you do these? And my dad said, no, no, he did. <laughs> and then he said, oh, wow. Okay. He said, you're not going to be here next year. You're going to come in with us. <laughs> And they had a big art marquee specifically full of artists. And he said, you've got to be in with us. He said, you can't exhibit like this, you know. <laughs> um, so he saw the potential in the work, but he just realized I was he didn't know. He not knew. a clue he, as to how to show them. You know? Exactly. Yeah. He's yeah. just like, yeah, you know, you're you obviously don't know what you're doing. Yeah. And yeah. He, yeah. He just did. And I mean, it was nice of him to protect you like that. Absolutely. Though. And yeah. um, believe me, I know the art, art world can be. Cutthroat. Pretty cutthroat place. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he saw something in me that he clearly thought needs to be brought on and developed. And uh, Alan remained, has always remained a, a very um, influential person in my life, you know, as far as the artwork and where it's where I've gone with it. Um, and ironically, years and years later, I end up uh, exhibiting with him a lot for the same gallery in London. Um, so yeah, uh, that was the start and very quickly, you know, the falconry fairs coincidentally at that time were in quite a buoyant period and they got better and better and better. This fair just grew and grew. And, um, I remember actually it got to the stage where people were queuing to come and see what I'd put up before I'd even had a chance to get that. They were, they were wanting to buy stuff as it was being unwrapped, you know, to put on the wall. And I was selling stuff before it would even really, the show had started. Um, it was a great foundation to work that way. You know, it, it taught me a lot. Um, the Falconers, support in general for me has been throughout my career they've always been there they've always supported what i'm doing i'm very grateful to them you know in general yeah it's not very often someone can say that they kind of found a couple of their early 
mentors in both avenues of things that they, no. yeah, it, they're kind of in the same environment, the same place, same time type yeah. of deal. Yeah. Uh, it's really unique. But again, you know, Alan was very quick to impress on me that the real people that you have to impress and the, the toughest of critics are falconers. They really know the subject. They really know the birds. And to sell to them is a very, very tough thing because they know what they're looking at, you know. <laughs> well, and we all know how frugal a lot of falconers can be too. <laughs> yeah. Out of necessity, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, they come from all walks of life. Sure. Um, and uh, they are, their passion kind of knows no bounds. You know, I've had guys that have just filled their places with artwork and that they've bought, not just from me, but from other, other artists, you know, just wrapped our art everywhere. Um, you know, and I can appreciate it because, you know, falconry gets under your skin, mm -hmm. you know, and some would say, yes, it's in your blood. I don't know about that, but there is something about falconry that is quite intoxicating. Yeah. Know? Yeah. If you can manage your way through the initial hoops that you have to jump through yeah. and you're not deterred and yeah. you keep with it and in a lot more of a... Uh, a steady way and don't fall by the wayside with it. Then yes. Yeah. It's, it's very hard to give it up once you're it once it's ingrained and established. It is. You. It is. And, uh, and this is where your mentors are really important, you know? Um, and, uh, I, I admire kind of the system that you have in the States with the mentor mentorship that you have. And, um, we don't have that. And I have always admired it. We, we have it in a much more informal way. Yeah. You know, and if you can find a gem of a falconer that really knows his thing, you can learn so much. You know, it can lift your falconry very quickly in direction and, and ability, you know. Um, just like art. If you can find the right mentor with art, um, it... It lifts your ability. You know, you have to have that innate innate ability, of course. I don't believe I don't believe that people um have a God given gift. I think it needs to be worked out. And I remember working really hard um on my drawing in particular. And I look back at the drawings now and I think, oh my god, it's horrendous. But um <laughs> I remember the blood, sweat and tears of drawing, copying. And I did a lot of copying. I looked at artists like George Lodge, of course. David Reed Henry was a real uh, influence to me. And then I started to discover more contemporary artists like Robert Bateman and the likes of Alan Hunt. Um, and uh, it hones what you do. But it's just blood, sweat, tears working on it constantly. For sure. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, I do know. Yeah. I mean, I used to lock myself in my room for anywhere from two to five hours. You know, I know that's a kind of a broad spectrum there, yeah. but I mean, on a, in, depending on, you know, home workload or if yeah. I had to work or whatever, two to two to five hours a night, like yeah. starting from my late freshman year of high school all the way through pretty much mm. practicing, you know, um, and, uh, you know, like when I started playing bass a lot more heavily and, and so I get it. And I mean, even I, I, I still listen back occasionally to mixes or, or things I've mixed or mastered from, you <laughs> yes. know, 10, 15 years ago and yeah. exactly the same thing. I just, you know, think my, I'm going to lose either my sense of hearing or I've given my ears cancer or something like <laughs> that. Like literally I, I'm wanting to just vomit no, I know listening. That feeling. Oh my. I know that feeling. It's, I mean, it's finding terrible. the early work is horrendous sometimes. Well, um, yeah. But, I mean, even, even these podcasts and, and since I've started doing this, I mean, there's still things that 
there's things that I do now that, that are different than even when I started doing this, you know, four years ago. And there's just little things that you pick up and, you know, your other audio, audio buddies that you talk to occasionally like, Oh, I'm using this plugin to do this now. And it it really clean. I'm like, Oh, okay, well I'll give it a try. And then now I'm using it every single, every single time now. I mean, it's just part of my routine now. So yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, Alan, Alan for, for one, I had a big leap of development from Alan because I was looking at his paintings and I was like, what is he painting on? This isn't like the, the I, I used to use illustration board, which is quite loose and flimsy, really, although it's harder than I, I progressed from trying to work on stretch paper and work all out that all out. And I was thinking, what are these guys painting on? And it was uh, Masonite, basically. Um what we call MDF. Um, and he showed me how to prepare the board, how to make the surface right. Um, I asked him what paints he was using. And once I discovered the paints that he was using, which was acrylics, my work stepped up a massive level from that point. You know, um, it's almost like early on, I was battling against all this, you know, the, the, the materials I was using were never going to give me the results that I was looking at that they were producing, you know? Um, so just knowing the technical side of it, being educated about the technical side of materials, um, it lifts you, you know, and you can just progress that much more. Um, the same thing's true of falconry. I think, once somebody sort of shows you what is possible with maybe a certain bird as well, I, I mean for 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 Jeff's support and and teaching, he was at a certain level of falconry, and I always wanted. I was a peregrine nut. I you know I was going to want to fly peregrines, and that was a dream. And he, because of where we lived in Devon, which is largely enclosed country. He always said to me, no, nah, you don't want to go and fly a peregrine. You're just going to lose it. You just, you know, a few years down the line, I'm flying peregrines in Devon, you know, uh, on game and having success because I started talking to people that knew knew how to get that, to get to that point. You know, mm-hmm. and and uh, it just shows you you can you can move forward with it. You know, and you just have to keep progressing. So, when how long did it take you to get that first peregrine? Then did you start with a different bird, or? Well, because I was I I I had an unconventional I would say start with it because I was spending so much time with Jeff and Glow, um, and at the center later on that they had. I was handling the birds. I was handling all sorts of, I was handling Harris's, owls, small falcons, even large falcons, uh, helping them out. Um, so when it came to the point, which was quite late for me of getting a falcon, and I would say I was, I'm trying to remember, it was probably about 21. Um, he, he said to me, you don't need to get a Harris. Because all you're going to do is have the Harris, you're going to hunt it for a bit, and then you're going to want to progress onto a long wing. You know, so he said, just start with a lanner. Get a female lanner and, you know, just start with her. And that's what I did. And I I was very lucky. Um, after the falconry fair, I, I started uh, meeting falconers that really knew what they were doing and and. It, in early, well, 92, I remember my first trip to Scotland and I got to see grouse hawking for real, which blew me away, absolutely blew me away. And I thought, this is what I want to do. <laughs> this is what I want, you know, but it was all dreamland still, you know, it was just amazing. So I went up to Forsenard and I saw um, some of the best falconers in the country at that time, flying peregrines, um, uh, Steve Williams, um, uh, Paul Gillett, uh, was flying. Um, there was an American guy actually, 
David Frank. Um, he was flying, and David actually was very helpful to me. I have to say, through my early career, he was very helpful. Um, he he was the one actually said at the fair, "Come up to Scotland. I'll get you to come up." And and that's when I went up uh, on his invite, and I got to meet these guys. Getting back to the Lana thing, uh, Paul Gillett had a friend, uh, Gary Margots, who's sadly passed now, but a great guy. He had bred this one Lana that was total imprint, but he tame hacked it from his place. Absolutely lovely bird. And he, and he said, she'd be perfect for you. You know, just learn with this one. And uh, so I took on that bird. Um Total imprint, female Lana called Zoe, and uh, I cut my teeth with her. Uh, I kept her for, I think, about four or five seasons, and I ended up actually even hunting with her, which I never thought I would do. I thought it would be lure flying, and you know, and then I ended up hedge bashing with her, you know, just in a very basic, random way, uh, put her up, and then bash hedges for for stuff to come out. It was fun, a lot of fun, and I learned a lot. Um, and uh, we caught stuff. You know, I caught partridge with her. I caught moorhen. I caught uh, wood pigeons. I caught, you know, uh, starlings, these sorts of things, uh, blackbirds. Um, but then in the end, again, because of my novice sort of status in a way, imprints for me were a complete, mystery and i'd read up and i read this and that and i worked out i kept her aggression down she was never vocal she never became you know a vocal bird but her aggression did start to come out towards me when she started to mature and i remember talking to a a breeder friend of mine by then who'd become a collector of my work and he said why don't i take zoe from you you know, she should be good for breeding. She's a total imprint and I'll give you a bird to fly. And that's when I went to a small male Barbary called Dink. <laughs> <laughs> he was 14 ounces. Um, probably in hindsight may not have been the best choice for me, but I, again, I learned and then I progressed from him onto larger peregrines and went down that road really to to fly in peregrines at game you know and i've had a number of them and i'll always be a peregrine nut it's just in me now i just don't you know i've flown a few hybrids um uh but i've always returned to peregrines yeah so as far as any of the other i know we were kind of talking back and forth between yeah, yeah but, but before we started a you know, between the, the time that you got here and before we started recording that, didn't you say you'd flown like some Merlins or something too? Yeah, I, I had a, I mean, I've only had one Merlin, which I uh, flew and that was a Jack Merlin. Um, and uh, I had some success with him. I don't think I, you know, I was doing brilliantly with him, but he caught larks, you know, and he caught a lot of pipits. He wasn't doing any of the real classical ringing flights, but I had a lot of fun with him. Um, and what happened there was, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, I was flying the Merlin and then another good friend of mine, Leonard Hurrell, who's one of the old guard of falconry here. <laughs> um, Leonard's a very dear old chap from Plymouth. He's one of the first men to breed. I think he was the first guy to breed sparrowhawks in captivity here. Um, so he had peregrines, um, but he was also one of the front lines of people having birds brought into him that were in trouble, you know, rehab stuff. And I'd been flying this Merlin um, for a while, and I was uh, thinking along the lines of what shall I get next sort of thing, you know. Um, I was going to carry on flying him, but I then passed him on to another friend. Because Leonard had come into uh, with this tearsel that was handed in with very, very bad uh, worm infestation. He was just very, very low. But he was essentially a passage tearsel peregrine. Uh, Leonard got him flying and 
flew him uh, to a certain point, but Leonard had no game. And I was lucky enough to have be on land with game. Uh, and Leonard said to me, do you want to take this TSL on? But w the proviso with this particular TSL was that he was for release. So we had to get him fit, killing, hunting, and it was going to take basically a season after his first malt to get him up and ready where we'd be satisfied that he could go back. So I had a season flying this uh, second year passage, basically. Um, and he was awesome. He's one of the best TSLs I ever flew. <laughs> well, that's that's a wide variety of experience. Like I said, that yeah. was over. So, so that was from roughly, you said, 21, 22 years old till, till now, pretty much? Yeah, I've had... Um, I've had a number of female peregrines, uh, not many, like a couple, um, and the rest have been tiercels, Um, mostly flying at partridge, which, like Simon has also said, you know, we're in a situation in England a lot where wild partridge are very sort of localised, if you like, um, and where I was, I managed to find large, large fields towards the coast, which suited flying, uh game and i had a small release program and there was a bunch of us at that time um sort of my early 20s um dave scott another artist actually friend artist falconer friend was just up the road and we all seemed to get into long wings around the same time <laughs> so he was flying he was flying perry sakers and i was flying uh i had a a female peregrine barbary actually but she was on the larger side for that hybrid but um and i flew her at, at, at uh at partridges but it all started with this rehab tiercel really in in real actually succeeding flying a lot of quarry and having a lot of fun i used to fly him at all sorts uh i flew him at teal snipe um golden plover which you know is there in my mind, one of the ultimate quarries, if you can get your falcons regularly taking golden plover, you're, you're up there, really. Uh, I had flights of them. I wasn't particularly successful at them, but I had a lot of very exciting flights on golden plover with that boy. So, um, yeah, it was a period of um, a lot of uh enthusiasm and mistakes and <laughs> learning about kites you know suddenly this new technique had come in of using <laughs> kites to get pitch and so i started messing around with that you know um and then later on came the drones as you know it's it's always progressing always evolving sure and you're learning um yeah. But, uh, yeah, one of my best female peregrines actually came through Dave's hands. Again, he was on the rehab side of things. And she was called Megan. Um, and she was a pure British peregrine, large, dark. I couldn't believe when he opened the box and said, you know, I want you to work with this. And he opened the box, this beautiful, dark female peregrine staring at me and spitting fire and venom and you know what they're like and uh and i worked with that bird she was really smashed up she'd uh flown she was being watched by a group of enthusiasts as we say you know that that uh, regularly watch certain peregrine sites um she'd flown into the roof space of one of these cathedrals where they got anti-pigeon netting so she got wrapped up in all this anti-pigeon netting and smashed herself to pieces trying to break three. So she'd had broken primaries and tail and everything. She was a mess. So the only option with her was to imp into her massively and fly her to the kite to build her fitness. And I knew I'd have to molt her out before I even then decided what we're going to do with her. Um... So that's what I did. I kited her for a year, just solid, you know. Um, another friend of mine uh, did all the imping for me and uh, we kept her in the air, 
despite her damage, you know, and um, I had that bird for five seasons in the end and she became one of the best peregrines I've ever had. <laughs> Would you say that that, so, yeah, I mean, as far as, I mean, you've listened to the podcast enough that, you know, that we always want at least a good story or two about a particular bird or a particular hunt or whatnot. Yeah. But I mean, would you classify that as, as your, as your best then, or is there another bird that's, that's, uh, still like at the forefront of your mind? That's for a particular really hunt tough, or? really tough. I think she was the best female peregrine I'm ever likely to fly. She was, um, she wasn't the largest, she wasn't the most powerful, but she certainly loved to fly. And, uh, she became a very high mountain bird. Um, and uh, I, with the way my life went, um, sadly I got divorced um, about sort of 11 years ago. And uh, But I had Megan at the time and I had the opportunity put in front of me through an art collector to move up to Northumberland onto a grouse moor. And he gave me the opportunity to fly peregrines at grouse so i had megan who was already three seasons or so old and then i started grouse walking with her um she was awesome absolutely awesome she made that transition from flying pheasants and partridge straight onto grouse no problem at all um took to it really easily um but my most memorable flight with her was on a pheasant, a hill pheasant, which were really, they're really tough birds because I'd imagine you obviously in hill country in, in America, pheasants are really hard to get to lock to a point, aren't they? They, they run around in cover. And I had this point and I thought it was a grouse and it was on this side of a hill, uh, overlooking, uh, near a big reservoir, uh, big body of water. And my pointer, which was also given to me at the time, um, Amber had been struggling to locate this point. She was coming on, coming off, coming off. And I, I thought these grouse are giving her the runaround, you know, but Megan was already at sort of, and this was pre GPS. I'd have no idea really, but she was a good sort of 600 feet and climbing. And I think this is going to be good. This is going to be nice. And then, because Amber was struggling to lock onto this, whatever it was, grouse, pheasant, I didn't know, but I, I thought it was grouse. The next time I looked at it, I couldn't see Megan. I just, you know, at that point where you just like, I just cannot see where this falcon is. Um, and my only indication was faith, really, that she was still there. Um, and I turned on the telemetry and got a rough idea about where she was. Anyway... I nearly stood on this cock rooster and they're small up in Northumberland. They're not big pheasants, but they're like rockets. And this thing took off and headed towards the reservoir. And my memory of her was I couldn't see her from the first part of the stoop, but it looked like she was stooping almost at something else. She was coming down vertically at a distance and then she, bottomed out the stoop and shot past me over my left shoulder at God knows what speed and just connected to the rooster before he hit the reeds by the edge of this this reservoir. And it was just, that was the flight of her career for me. Just, and he was stone dead in the stoop. You know, she hit him and he dropped like, you know, like a brick. He was done. You know, and uh, I also had flights on her at black grouse, which is quite unusual. Not many people get to fly that species in this country. And she she never brought one to bag, sadly, but she did take a feather, feathers out of a few. And, you know, they were always from very high pitches and it was awesome. She was an awesome bird. Well, that sounds amazing. It does. <laughs> you know, I, I've been fortunate enough to actually the first time that I got to see any uh, peregrines connect with ducks or any yeah. actual game was, uh, was when I went to Mexico earlier this year. Yes. And I, you know, I've, I've seen like when I was training that, that prairie a, a handful of years ago and, and I've, I've seen some of these other birds train or get, you know, serve pigeons mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. whatnot, but, but it's nowhere near is, no. you know, the speed or the, the, 
just the the stoop that you get or you see in person whenever you see one yes. on live game in the real. You know, I mean, I was yeah. I was amazed how quick because it was similar situation with this one peregrine just basically doing the same. Um, actually, left side mine also yeah. just kind of come over the the top of this pond and just do the the side swipe deal. Yes, you know, with the with yeah. the duck and cutting it over. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean it's 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 a it's a life goal of mine. I'm not sure oh, if yeah. I'll ever yeah. live in a place that'll let me do it on any consistent basis, but I'm jealous. That's, that's, I hope, I hope you get to do it because it's, I mean, again, the, the connection with the artwork, this is where it all comes together because you're seeing that mm-hmm. firsthand and then whether I've got an ability to put that on canvas and understand it in a certain way, but that seeing this happen and, and molding that behavior, you know, seeing it, uh, develop in your own falcon day in day out i think gives me as an artist a unique perspective on how to put that together in a painting you well, know it's very admirable because i can barely draw stick figures <laughs> like seriously i mean i i joked with simon i was just like yeah to, to go with this pile of artwork in the corner <laughs> of your living room that you've accumulated since i've been here just this one week i'm gonna get a piece of paper and just draw you a stick figure falconer or something <laughs> just so you can put it above like in between your all your ellis paintings and everything else so you just put it right in the middle just right there and i've got a know. friend john meese who's very very proud of a eagle that i drew for him on a napkin <laughs> at uh, a spanish field meet we both attended uh we were both giving talks at this this spanish event and uh he's proudly got it up on the wall this little tiny napkin with a drawing of an eagle head he'd sort of dared he said look i bet you couldn't just do it just just like that he knew what he was doing he knew what he was he doing, of course. He was doing but he's very proud of it and that's great it's funny it's uh and whenever I visit him, I chuckle about it, really, when I see that thing on the wall. <laughs> um, but uh, the the cutting over thing that you were talking about earlier, I had one, uh, you know, one of my other really, really good flights was with a falcon called Missy, who she tested me. She was one <laughs> of the, she was my first female peregrine. And f- female peregrines to me are almost like a different species to the teasels, you know, in there in the way that you develop them, the way that they are. Uh, they know they can do amazing things, but they're going to make you work. <laughs> they're going to make you work to produce it, you know. Um, but in our third season, I remember I <laughs> I was going to a BFC local, like, kind of meet, but it was, it was all business. It wasn't field meet. It was like, you know, regular meeting. Um, and it was in the morning and I'd I got up at first light to go out and scout for 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 a flight before the meeting to then drive up to this to the meeting. And I remember I found a pheasant uh in a absolutely sweet sweet setup in the middle of nowhere, just off the side of a track. I used to put feeders out and 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 I also also used to um broadcast feed as well so i would you know put loads of grain up and down the track and i found a couple of hen pheasants right in the middle of nowhere and i had them in the bins and i thought this is just perfect it doesn't get any better than this and uh so i drove down around where i couldn't be seen and i put missy up and she literally just floated around my head at 50 feet (laughs) you know and i'm looking at this sweet setup and um, begrudgingly and rather annoyed and spitting feathers, I called her in and said, right, you're going to pay for that in a way. You know, I'm just going to stick you back in the car. You're not going to get fed. I'm going to go to the meeting. I had the meeting and it was all day long. And I came back and I thought, I wonder if. They're still there. I wonder if they're still there <laughs> in the area. And the, it was at the time of day where, you know, I'm losing light. And um, so it's not really on my way home, but I take the detour. (laughs) I'm thinking, I've got to do this. I've got to see. And I get there and sure enough, there's a one single hen pheasant 
just outside the bit of cover that runs along the track. And I thought, well, it's now or never. And I got her ready, kitted her up, cast her off. And like clockwork, she was ping, 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 <laughs> ping, you know, mounting above me. And I start the long walk out. Um, magic time of day as well. Both first light for me and end of the day, magic times. It was still maybe a little light wind, crisp. Still, it was quite cold. Um, not a cloud in the sky, but the sun's going down. And, she, you know, she's making these lovely circuits above me and the sun's lighting up her breast every time she'd make that turn you know and i'm trying not to look up too much because i i don't don't like doing that you know the yeah all the time um <laughs> and i get to within sort of 20 yards and all this time i mean i never had a dog for a long time so i'm sort of thinking shit i hope it's there shit i hope it's there <laughs> and sure enough clockwork this this Hen pheasants erupts and heads for cover, which is a good sort of two, three hundred yards to go. You know, it's got a long way to go. And I look up and she's rolled over and she's coming down, steaming down. And again, she did this thing where she swung out to the right and f came right the way across the front of the pheasant. And it was almost as if she barely touched it. But it just crumpled. And just crumpled to the floor. And she did this lovely sort of, oh, yeah, I'll just get to it in a minute. You know, <laughs> this sort of curling up around and she just winnowed down. It was stone dead. And I, and I was just thinking, Jesus, what a transformation from this morning where she just couldn't be asked to, you know, having to go hungry for that all that time. But boy, was she businesslike when I took her out again. But that was a hell of a flight for me. Yes. absolutely amazing heard of similar experiences from a lot of other long wingers yeah. like you know especially the ones that are like oh i don't i don't serve my bird if it's under 800 feet or whatever blah blah yep. i'll just call them back down and then the next time they'll go yep. up where i want them. i'm like okay i'll just take your word for it or whatever you know and and uh i'm like me it would be awful hard for me not to go ahead and, and, and serve that if it was a perfect slip or whatever but anyway well, yeah, no, that's that's beautiful. You do man. learn. You do learn. Yeah, you know, and uh, it took me. I, I've always had a problem with the discipline of it. Yeah, it's it's it is. It's hard. You know, when you've got that, it, even if the bird is sort of good, sort of four hundred feet, and it's looking really good, if that's not what it's usually done, or it's lower, and it's really hard to think. Nope, you're coming down to the lure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you I, know, it would be awful tough. I'm sure. Yeah, it is. it is. And I've I've heard that you you have to do it though because otherwise they won't ever go above that ever again if you do serve right. them and stuff. I so mean, I'm it took me it took me a good you know most falcons take about three or four seasons to really get you know you get TSLs sometimes too. develop a lot quicker. Mm -hmm. um, they seem to have that natural mounting ability, but females can be tough. But I'm lucky. I am very lucky that I had the two end up being quite high flyers but it was hard work i had friends that were flying hybrids um dave scott's perry saker was regularly an absolute speck in the sky you know and she did it almost from the word go a complete natural beautiful beautiful falcon really really good bird um and uh, and i marveled at it but again peregrines i i found um not so easy but they will do it and they do it well you know yeah no so. it's that's awesome man no i think that's um like i said it's it's been a a great conversation i think we probably need to go ahead and end on the usual note of going ahead and seeing if you've got anything to pass on words of wisdom or otherwise to anyone um getting um, into it or other generations or well what i'm gonna do is i'll say uh, it's a long journey and I think people, they want to rush to the to the best bit first. All the, you know, they're just desperate to get to these points of. And uh, the one thing that I've learned is that it is a slow process, you know. And be patient, be patient. Both both be patient with you and be patient with the birds, you know. Um, 
some will be naturals and they will progress very quickly. And if you've got one of those gems, then, well, congratulations to you, you know, but <laughs> yeah. often they're not. And you have to iron out all these kinks and but be patient with them. But the other thing is maybe I should say something about these guys that want to paint. Yeah. Get into the Raptor side of things. And, um, uh, I have bird artists, falconry artists rap regularly you know saying to me any advice and stuff like that but the biggest thing i can say is make sure your drawing is on point and that's where it all begins because that's the scaffold that you build the whole thing on and if your scaffold is off by even a little way later on down the line in the process of doing the painting it it shouts out um so just draw, draw, and do more drawing, and then do more drawing again until you are nailing stuff, you know. Um, also, try and get your own reference. Build your reference library up for yourself. Get out there in a the field, video, photograph, do all these things, you know. But um, drawing is really, really important. Perfect. I'll take your word for it. Um, cause I mean, you're kind of all right at what you do, I guess, you know, um, <laughs> trying. so, you know, I'll, I'll take, there. yeah, I'll take, I'll take your word for it. Uh, like I said, I, I can't draw anything past stick figures, but, but yeah, man, no, this has been a, a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to stop off and, no um, and we won't, uh, Thank you. we won't bore anyone else right now that may or may not be in the room with us kind of listening. We'll, uh, he's heard it 20, 30 times before. I, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, man, thank you so much. And, you. uh, now this was a pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. Cheers. Cheers now. Bye-bye.